Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 161 for the first half of April 2017. The topic I'm going to talk today is about water and the pseudoscience specifically related to the Coriolis force and then tides the moon and the effects on humans. As with the last episode, this one's main topic, or main segment, is a little bit shorter than usual, but I'm going to get to a lot of feedback and a few corrections at the end. The first water-based topic for this episode is a simple science issue that I relearned wrong in The Simpsons when we learned that the toilets flush in different directions in different hemispheres. My grandmother also told me in the 1990s that when she visited Africa with a tour group, they went to the equator, and they were shown that north of the equator, a bucket of water with a hole in the bottom drained counterclockwise. It then drained clockwise south of the equator, and then it drained straight through on the equator. At the time, I imagined the equator to be a thick red line going through the area just like on the globe that we had at home. What these two claims have in common is a very common misconception about the Coriolis effect, also sometimes known as the Coriolis force. How it works and to what it applies is one of the more common misunderstandings about how bodies of water behave on our planet. So, the first part of this episode is a primer on the effect and to what it applies so that you, too, can be a stick in the mud at parties. First off, the Coriolis force is not a real force. In physics, it's called a fictitious force because it's not real. What do I mean by that? Well, in physics, per Newton's first law, an object will maintain a constant velocity, even if that velocity is zero, unless acted upon it by a force. So a force, a real force, is something that can change an object's motion. A fictitious force is something that we invent to describe the appearance of a change in an object's velocity, when in reality, that object's velocity has not changed in its own reference frame. We call its own reference frame the inertial reference frame. That comes just from the idea of inertia, or the tendency of an object to maintain its own motion. See, these, these things do kind of tie together, and I talked about inertia a few episodes ago when I talked about the flag waving in the Apollo moon oaks. Probably the most common example of a fictitious force is centrifugal force. If I'm in a car and I'm moving in a straight line, and I turn the car to the left, or the driver's side if you're in most civilized countries, I'm going to feel the car pushing me from the right. Because of Newton's third law, if the car is pushing me from the right, I'm pushing on it from the left to the right. In other words, the car is trying to push me from the right to the left in order to make that left turn, while I'm pushing back on it in order to maintain my constant velocity relative to, well, everything else. Me pushing on the car in an equal and opposite direction is a pseudo-force, or a fictitious force, in this case, centrifugal force. My body wants to follow Newton's first law and keep going straight ahead. The car is acting upon my body to push it to the left, and so in physics, we create a fictitious force called the centrifugal force to explain how it seems as though I'm pushing outwards, away from the direction of the turn. Centrifugal forces only exist in the rotating or turning reference frame in this case. In the inertial reference frame, in other words, my body relative to the 
you know, planet, I guess, uh, there is no force going on. But if we want to use basic classical mechanics to describe my motion from my own rotating reference frame in the car, or the turning reference frame, we have to create a new force. The same is true for the Coriolis force, though the Coriolis force, or effect, is almost always described with systems on the scale of a planet as opposed to systems on the scale of a car. To understand the Coriolis effect, I had to pause here and read several examples because I was getting at the opposite of how it works. So, for me, the example that works is one of those playground spinny whirly thingies where the goal is to make everyone dizzy and see who's the last one standing and doesn't throw up. But they can also be used to demonstrate the Coriolis force, and I'm going to link to several videos on YouTube in the show notes that demonstrate this. So you can watch those, and you can also go to the Great and Powerful Wikipedia page to read up on other examples if the one that I'm going to describe doesn't make sense. So let's say that you have a quadcopter or drone, and you have a camera aimed straight down at the center of the spinny thing, and you've signed consent forms from everyone who's going to be imaged have to be legal these days. You have one person in the middle of the spinny thing. You have another person at the 12 o'clock position, or really any position. Someone else starts to spin the spinny thing counterclockwise, so to the right of the person at the 12 o'clock position. That person at the 12 o'clock position has a helmet with a GoPro on it and is recording. Once you get it spinning and you maintain a constant rate of speed, the person who started at the 12 o'clock position reaches the 12 o'clock position again, so they're sort of straight up if you're looking at this at the end on your computer screen. They roll a ball to the person in the middle. The person in the middle catches the ball. After you thank everyone and buy pizza for participating in your experiment, you get home and you look at all of your recorded footage. From the quadcopter's vantage point, straight up in the inertial reference frame, the ball appears to simply go straight down from the 12 o'clock position in a line that would take it to the 6 o'clock position, but it's interrupted by the person in the middle who catches it. Now you can look at the GoPro footage. From the rotating position of the initial person who rolled the ball, the ball does not go in a straight line. Instead, it curves to their left away from the direction of rotation, and then curves back to the middle to reach the catcher. I'm going to link to, as I said, the venerable source of all that is true Wikipedia in the show notes, which I do encourage people to look at because it does have a lot of examples, both explained verbally and in pictures, including this one, which is the tossed ball on a rotating carousel. To put the example perhaps a bit more succinctly, the moving object is going to move in a straight line from the inertial reference frame. But in the rotating reference frame, it's going to appear to deviate, moving in a direction away from the direction of motion. If the rotating reference frame is rotating counterclockwise, that means that it will appear to deviate clockwise, or to the right if you're looking from above. If rotating clockwise, then it will deviate to the left if you're looking from above. The amount of the deviation will be more if the reference frame is rotating faster. That means that the deviation is stronger as you get closer to the equator because it's moving faster than right next to either pole. It also means that large-scale patterns of stuff that act like fluid on the planet, such as, say, water or air, is going to rotate counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. 
That's why hurricanes or typhoons or cyclones or twisters or tornadoes or any other spinning storms and synonyms of them will rotate counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. The only time that the Coriolis force is zero is when the velocity of an object is parallel to the axis of rotation. So on Earth, that happens if an object is on the equator and moving north or south. But as soon as it gets past the equator, that invisible imaginary point, not a big red line, usually, then the Coriolis is going to start to kick in. So, getting back to the initial examples, was my grandmother right? Was the Simpsons right? Well, it's complicated, but no. To put it succinctly, no, they were wrong. From a physics standpoint, neither were correct. The reason is that the Coriolis force is rather weak as a fictitious force and real forces go. While there's always going to be a Coriolis force there, or the effect is going to be there, it simply doesn't apply much in our daily lives because it's drowned out by everything else. For example, if I fill a bowl with water, the residual motions of all the water molecules within it from the filling is going to be huge relative to any Coriolis force. If I let it settle for a week and then I tap it, that motion is still going to be larger than any Coriolis force. The same thing goes if I fill a bathtub or a pool or anything on a more human scale. If I were then to drain any container of water out of the bottom, the shape of that hull and all of the imperfections, either designed or not, is going to dominate by many powers of 10, many orders of magnitude, over the amount of any rotational effects that would be caused by the Coriolis force. In a toilet bowl in particular, there are usually jets of water that are aimed at an angle, to the left or to the right, along the top of the bowl such that when you flush, there's a larger chance of dislodging any material and moving it down the drain. Those jets' directions are what cause the water in the toilet bowl to spin, counterclockwise or clockwise, or if you're special, those jets are straight down and there may be no rotation at all, and you might have to clean your toilet bowl a little bit more often. As for my grandmother's experience, well, if it actually did happen, and A, this isn't a false memory or the Mandela effect, or B, she wasn't just lying to me because you know, grandmothers do that to 10, 12-year-olds, if it really did happen, then it's very likely that the guide just switched the water in the correct direction at the start to get it to rotate in the correct direction for the location north or south of the equator. And then they didn't sort of swish it with their wrist or whatever when they were on the equator. It may not even have been intentional, but rather the idiomotor effect, which we hear so often about in skepticism with regards to things like Ouija boards and dowsing. Another factor that has a minimal effect on small bodies of water is the next topic of this episode, tides. In the crossover episode with the Reality Check podcast, episode 157, Christina addressed the general idea of lunacy, that the full moon has an effect to generally make people more agitated such that emergency room visits spike as do crimes. This isn't true, as she pointed out in the episode. I also talked about whether the phase of the moon correlates with earthquakes back in episode 50. It doesn't. But there are yet more claims that we can talk about, and one that I'm going to be talking about in this episode, because I'm surprised that I haven't really addressed it before, is the claim that because humans are mostly water, and the moon creates tides in water, the moon affects us too. The necessary background to analyze this claim is similar to Coriolis. 
and understanding of the tidal force. Just as Coriolis is a fictitious force, tidal force is also not really a force in and of itself. Instead, it's a secondary effect from the force of gravity. Put into my own words, and I did my own homework on this, the tidal force is the difference in the force of gravity on one side of an object to the other side of that object. Understanding tides is another case of understanding frames of reference. Let's go from Earth's reference point and ignore everything else that's out there in the entire universe except for the moon. Newton's universal law of gravitation states that the force of gravity is proportional to the distance between the two objects squared. In particular, the closer you are, the stronger the effects, and so it's an inverse square law. That means that if we set the force from gravity on an object on another object a certain distance away as one, then if you double the distance, the force from gravity is going to be quartered, or only 25% as strong. If you triple the distance, gravity is only one-ninth as strong. Quadruple, it's one-sixteenth, and so on and so forth. In that thought experiment or ratio example, if you're paying attention and thinking about this in your head, you probably thought of those values, that 25% or one-sixteenth as much, as applying evenly over the entire object. The thing about tides is that they don't. You have to consider the fact that all objects have a certain finite size to them. That means that while we can give a value for the gravitational force between Earth and the Moon, that value is, in fact, a little bit different for the point on the Moon that's closest to Earth versus the point on the Moon that's farthest away from Earth. The point that's closest experiences a stronger pull, and the point farther away experiences a slightly less strong pull. From Earth's reference point, it's still pulling on all parts of the Moon, just slightly less on the furthest side. But the Moon's pretty strong, and it can handle it, although it does flex a little bit as a result. But if we were to shift to the Moon's vantage point, such that our reference point is at the center of the Moon, the part of the Moon that's closest to Earth is pulled towards Earth, and the part of the Moon that's farthest away from Earth is pulled in the other direction. Remember, we've changed reference frames such that we, at the center of the Moon, are staying in the same position. So this also means that the top and bottom get pulled a little bit towards the center of the Moon, but to reiterate, all of the Moon is still pulled towards Earth, it's just pulled by different amounts such that it's often easier to think of tides uh, from the reference point of the body experiencing the tides, such that you're neutral, you're effectively not moving. To think about this another way, consider the Moon's effects on Earth. Newton's third law, for a second time in this episode, holds that when one body exerts a force on another, that other body will exert an equal and opposite force on the first body. So Earth causes a gravitational force on the Moon, meaning that the Moon causes a gravitational force or effect on Earth. And because Earth is a reasonably sized planetary body, the side facing the Moon will experience a stronger gravitational pull than the side facing away from the Moon. All of Earth still gets pulled to the Moon, it's just that the closest part gets pulled a little bit more. And that's why we see ocean tides. If everything were perfectly aligned, then the water on the side of the Earth that faces the Moon will be pulled towards the Moon more than the land below it. 
The water on the opposite side of Earth will experience less gravitational pull towards the moon than the land below it, so it will effectively sort of stay put and bulge outwards or away from the moon relative to the planet. Explained a bit differently, if we shift reference frames again, so we're looking at the Earth-Moon system as an outside observer, let's put Earth on the left and the moon on the right. The water facing the moon gets pulled a lot towards it, the land underneath gets pulled somewhat towards the moon, and the water on the other side of Earth gets pulled just a little bit towards the moon. That's why we have two high tides roughly each day on Earth. You get a high tide when you're facing the moon, and you get a high tide when you're facing in the opposite direction from the moon. The anti-moon tide is almost like the water being left behind as the ground underneath it is pulled towards the moon. Now, I have simplified the explanation quite a bit. Uh, for example, Earth's tides are actually ahead of the moon due to Earth's rotation. Incidentally, this does pull the moon forward in its orbit, giving it more energy, and that's why it's steadily receding from the planet and Earth's rotation is slowing down, such that eh, in maybe 1 to 2 billion years, we'll likely be a tidally locked system like Pluto and Charon, where the same side of each body consistently faces the other. At the moment, the moon is tidally locked to Earth, but Earth is not tidally locked to the moon. Also, something that I didn't mention is that Earth's crust also flexes due to the moon's tidal effects, but because rock is much stronger than water, we notice the water, but don't notice the ground underneath us shifting very, very slightly. I think the number that I read was that the tidal force from the moon uh, dissipated within the Earth's crust is only 4% of the total tidal effect. So that means that 96% is relegated to the water on the planet. Another simplification that I told you to ignore is every other solar system body, as well as galaxies and other stars and blah blah blah. We experience tidal effects from everything, just as we experience them from the moon, but none so much as the moon, simply because the moon is so close. The sun is the next largest factor, and it's only 45% of the moon's tidal force, but when it's a new or full moon, those can add up and give us larger-than-normal tides called spring tides. When they're at right angles to each other during a first or third quarter moon, then they cancel each other out a lot, and we get weak tides called neap tides, N-E-A-P. The reason that the sun has such a small effect tidally, even though by far it's the dominant gravitational force on us, again gets back to the root idea of tides being a secondary effect from gravity. What matters is not the total gravitational force, it's the difference in gravitational force from one side of the body to the other. Earth and the moon are very close, so even though they're much less massive than the sun, the difference in gravitational force from one side to the other is pretty large, in contrast with the sun. The sun's gravitational force on us is very large, but the difference in that tidal force, or the force from gravity from one side of Earth to the other, is relatively small, 45% as much as the moon's. Same thing goes with Jupiter, Mars, Venus, etc. True, they all will cause a tide on the planet, and we on them, but the effect is super tiny compared with the dominant one of the moon and the secondary one of the sun. That brings us back to the claim that because we're made mostly of water and the moon produces tides, it must also affect us because it makes tides on our body, as in you and me and whoever else, your dog, your pet, fish, 
All of those are apparently experiencing tidal effects from the moon. But the question is, how much of an effect? You can easily come up with the answer to this claim by remembering that the amount of a tide is proportional to the difference in gravitational force from one side of the body to the other. Earth is pretty large, roughly 12,746 kilometers in diameter, and I'm using an approximate diameter because we're not a perfect sphere. You are quite small, at perhaps maybe uh, 1.7 meters tall, or maybe 0.3 meters deep. The difference in gravitational force from one side of you to the other versus one side of Earth to the other is minuscule. In fact, I used an online tidal force calculator because I didn't want to do it by hand and risk messing up the calculation, and I calculated the tidal force on Earth from the moon. I then calculated it between a human that's 0.3 meters deep and weighs about 70 kilograms and the moon. In the first calculation, as just an order of magnitude, I got 10 to the 19th newtons. That's a lot of tidal force. The units are not important, it's just that order of magnitude, 10 to the 19. In the second calculation, the moon's tidal force on you, or me, or your friend, I got 10 to the negative 10 newtons. That's a factor of 10 to the 29th difference in tidal force. The SI, or metric system, doesn't even have a prefix for that. The best I can do for you is uh, something around 100 exagiga times as much, or perhaps 100 kilotera tera times as much. This is just basic physics, understood for over 400 years. I'm not making up new science here, so whenever you hear someone make this kind of claim, they're just wrong. The moon's gravitational force on you is pretty much zero. And you can use these online calculators to test the comparison of, uh, that's often given in skeptic circles. A mosquito sitting on your arm has more of a tidal effect on you than the moon. So, put in the moon's mass and distance, put in your mass and your radius, and put in a mosquito's mass and its distance from you. I used 70 kilograms for a person and a radius of 0.00015 kilometers or 15 centimeters, which I'm just guessing at because uh, when I did an internet search for the average depth of a human, I got a very not safe for work result on you know, filling the first page. So make sure safe search is on if you try to do that. Um, but anyway, the weight of a mosquito that I used in this calculation is Let's see, 0.0000025 kilograms, or about 2.5 milligrams. A distance for the mosquito of about 10 centimeters if it's on my arm, and so away from the core of my body by about 4 inches. When I put in those numbers, the tidal force exerted on my body from the mosquito is two times as much as that from the moon. So let me repeat that. The moon's tidal effects on you and a mosquito's tidal effects on you are different by a factor of two. The mosquito sitting on your arm has twice as much of a tidal effect on you as the moon does. So think about that next time you actually hear this kind of claim. And so there you go. Really given well-established physical laws and reasonably straightforward calculations, there's no way that the moon's tides could possibly affect you in the way that it's often reported on in pseudoscientific circles, in the sense of, well, the moon affects tides and water, therefore, since you are mostly water, then the moons are going to affect you. 
doesn't work. It doesn't matter that your body is 50 to 60% water. It wouldn't matter if your body were 99.99% water or air, as I think some late-night radio hosts might be. It is impossible for the tidal force of the moon to directly affect your body, given everything else that's around you. The magnitude of the force is simply too small. It's too small in comparison with everything else that's constantly pushing and pulling on your body, like the chair you're sitting in, the truck that just drove past you on the highway, or your boss asking for those TPS reports. Similarly, while the Coriolis force is a real fictitious force, and just like tides, it technically operates on small scales, your kitchen sink or bathroom toilet bowl is simply too small to show the effects from it, just as you don't get high and low tides in your hot tub whenever the moon is an hour from passing overhead or under you. As with many things in life, it's all about moderation, and understanding how much of something is really going to affect you is the key. Alright, I thought the main segment was going to be short. Turns out that it was about 26 minutes long. So while I wrote a lot of notes of feedback and I even responded to people saying, hey, I'm going to get to your feedback in the next show, I'm only going to do some of it this episode and I'll save the next or or the rest for the next show. Uh, So with that said, I do have some corrections and those are perhaps the most important feedback to get through. Uh, Corrections to the last episode, episode 160. One correction came from Daniel from Washington, the state of, who wrote to correct me that the USSR stood for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, not the United Soviet Socialist Republics, as I had stated. He also said, uh, or had a humorous quip about how he likes to respond when people claim that we never went to the moon with Apollo. He said, NASA hired Stanley Kubrick to fake the moon landings, which he did, on location. Craig from Texas also wrote in with a correction, pointing out that when I said that we were trying to show the world that democracy was better than socialism, I made a false comparison. Democracy is a political system, while socialism is an economic system. I probably should have said uh, communism, perhaps, instead. I also got uh, perhaps surprisingly little feedback on my rather depressed rant of an episode uh, 156, One person wrote in to agree with me in general and express the opinion that scientists, in general, don't seem to have as much activism as he thought that they should. Of course, I'm recording this and putting this out on the day of the uh, March for Science on April 22nd, even though it's for the first half of April, so that might be a start for things. But I also did get quite a few clips of support on Facebook and Twitter in response to that episode. I really only got one reasonably negative message from Steve, who took issue with my statement that 97% of climate scientists agree that global temperatures have increased beyond normal in the last 100 years. He said that that figure represents only 79 of 3,146 respondents who listed climate science as their area of expertise and published more than 50% of their recent peer-reviewed papers on climate change. Therefore, 79 scientists do not constitute a consensus. I would say Steve is correct. 79 scientists do not constitute a consensus. But 
I'm going to get into this uh, much more detail in a future planned series, maybe this year on climate change. Uh, But succinctly, Steve is quoting from one survey that actually was done. It was a survey by the American Geophysical Union, or AGU, and I'm actually a member of that, although the survey was done before I became a member of the AGU. In reality, there have been many surveys, uh, not only of climate scientists, but also many surveys of the peer-reviewed literature. What all of these surveys show is that the vast majority agree that the climate is changing abnormally fast and humans are likely to blame. It's not just one faulty survey. It's not just one abstract or survey of abstracts. It's a lot of different surveys of lots of different things. Anyway, as I said, I'll address this in more detail in a future episode. Dating back to episode 153, Terry from California wrote in about the radiation episode where I claimed that radio emissions are non-ionizing and therefore not dangerous to humans. Terry pointed out that very close to a transmitter, this doesn't necessarily hold. The link that Terry sent was uh, to an ARRL, or National Association for Amateur Radio, website. Frankly, a lot of that page actually reads a lot like pseudoscience. Here's an excerpt with all of the hallmarks of the naturalistic fallacy. Quote, All life on Earth has adapted to survive in an environment of weak, natural, low-level frequency or low-frequency electromagnetic fields in addition to Earth's static geomagnetic field. Natural low-frequency EM fields come from two main sources, the sun and thunderstorm activity. But in the last 100 years, man-made fields at much higher intensities and with a very different spectral distribution have altered this natural EM background in ways that are not yet fully understood. Much more research is needed to assess the biological effects of EMR. End quote. I wish that paragraph weren't just before a real issue, which actually is a valid issue, but when it's prefaced with that paragraph, it just makes the whole thing kind of iffy. But the real issue is one that I did talk about in that episode and very briefly in the TRC crossover episode. It comes down to heating, similar to microwave radiation. If your radio frequency is at one that water likes to absorb, water will absorb it. By absorbing energy, water will heat up. If there's a lot of energy to absorb, it will heat up a lot. But this is ridiculously inefficient, which is why it's really only a danger if you transmit along certain frequencies and have a very, very high power transmitter. Related to another past episode, when I interviewed Kirby Runyon about his definition of a planet, I got a lot of feedback. Interestingly, it was incredibly mixed. Some people thought that it was a silly definition, some people thought that it was a great definition, and others were more like me and, well, to put it bluntly, didn't really think that it was important to define the word. So with that said, I have, uh, looking through my notes, about five or six more bits of feedback that I have written down, but in the interest of keeping this to a roughly half-hour episode, I'm going to cut it here, address more in the next episode, and I will thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next one.
that wraps up this topic for the 161st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or tweet me at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then also tell friends, family, and random internet people that you've never met in real life.